Well, our main Bible reading is taken from Esther 1. And it says this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendour and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violets, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of pottery, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitzthar, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zetha, and Clarkus, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Kashina, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Masana, and Mimikum, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were, uh, who are all, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, 
who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give the royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for, all, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, there's just a few things to mention. Immediately after the sermon, I'll open things up for questions. So if you've got any questions or comments in light of the things we've been reflected upon today, then uh, there'll be an opportunity to ask them. So I mention that now so you know it's coming, so you know you could be thinking what questions you might have. Another thing to mention is your sermon outline. In your order of service, you've got a sermon outline, which of course you can use if that's helpful, but you can ignore if not. And then finally, let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this book of the Bible. And as we study it over the next few weeks, we pray, Lord, that we might better understand how you work in your world. We thank you that you're sovereign over all things and that you can... Um, bring about your will, even through the f- most foolish of kingdoms. We thank you, Lord, that that should give us a great confidence, knowing that you, your plan and purpose, cannot be spoilt. Amen. Well, in the book of Daniel, as we read earlier, there's a great feast held. And in some respects... It's similar to that feast given here by Ahasuerus. But in many respects, it's also quite different. King Belshazzar is throwing a party for a thousand of his lords. And during that party, they're drinking copious amounts of wine. The wine is so good that he commands that the vessels that were taken from God's temple in Jerusalem be brought so they can drink the wine from them. They drink the wine, and then they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At which point the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king is scared, and no one can understand the writing. That is, until Daniel comes along. You see, King Belshazzar hadn't humbled himself before God. He'd prayed to all these other gods, but hadn't shown any honour to God. And this was despite the fact 
that he'd known what had happened to his father. And so as a result of this, the kingdom would be taken from him and it would be given to the Medes and the Persians. Darius the Mede took the kingdom from Belshazzar that very night. Now the reason I've begun with this account is because it's similar to the account we have today. Here we have a king who is showing off by holding a great party. But it's also different. On this occasion, God intervenes with a human hand that writes on the wall, which brings a message that anticipates his immediate downfall. Well, in Esther chapter 1, God doesn't do anything. Now, the book of Esther is well known for having very few, if any, mentions of God. It just doesn't appear. And this presents us with a question that we can ask as we work through the book of Esther, which is, does the absence of God being mentioned in the book reflect God's absence in the account or is something else happening here? Now in Esther 1, not only is there no mention of God, but there's no mention of our main character, Esther. In fact, Esther 1 is the story of a foreign king, and there are no Israelites in the whole chapter at all. So what are we going to be able to take home from this morning's sermon? Or will we, what will we have to discuss at open home? Will what we reflect upon on this morning be totally lacking in any theology, so to speak? Well, let's have a look. Esther 1 serves to set the scene for the rest of the book. And it does so as a satire. So as we read Esther 1, the intention is that we, along with the author, laugh at the stupidity of the characters. We ridicule them for their silly behaviour and we smile at the irony of their actions. It's a comedy. Not necessarily a belly chuckle comedy. More like a comedy of people who think they're extremely important, take themselves very seriously when everyone else looking in can see through their attempts at cleverness. Ahasuerus is king, and he reigns from India to Ethiopia. He's the king of the whole known world, reigning over 127 provinces. And you might think, given all that, well, he's probably worthy of a lavish party to celebrate his glory. But 180 days are set aside to show off his greatness. That's just shy of six months. Once the days have come to an end, it's followed with a seven-day feast, which all the men of the kingdom, whether great or small, are able to take part in. Wine is served, but to demonstrate how extravagant this party is, 
All the vessels are made of gold. But not only that, every vessel is a different shape. The king makes an edict that any, everyone can drink according to their own desire. Now, in contrast to the exuberance of the king's party, we read in verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. The brevity and the lack of detail imply that compared to the king's party, this was a much more sober affair. Now this all sets the scene for the king's request of the queen and isn't very pleasant. At the height of his and his guests' intoxication, he calls for his queen, who is the one thing he's yet to show off. She is a most beautiful woman and Ahasuerus wishes to parade her before the drunken men to show her off. But the queen refuses to perform for the king, which in turn angers the king. So he calls for his wise men to provide an answer as to what is to be done. And in verse 16, Memucan provides an approach and explains his reasoning behind it. He's worried that the king, or the king's embarrassment, will become known throughout the provinces and that this is bad news for all husbands because the queen has not done the bidding of the king all the wives in all the province will show contempt contempt for their husbands so his solution is to send out a decree the vashti is never to come before the king that a replacement will be found and that all wives are to show honour to their husbands. And the king is happy with this advice and has the decree sent out. Now here are a few observations. First, it doesn't look good. The king rules over the whole known world and yet his diplomacy is completely lacking. When he makes a request to his own wife, she's unwilling to fulfil it. You could put it another way. The king enters into a contest of wills with his wife, and he loses. Another thing to notice is Memucan is worried that the queen's actions will become known, and yet his advice is to send a decree to the whole of his kingdom. He's worried that if all the wives of the kingdom hear about what Queen Vashti has done, they'll do the same to their husbands. To avoid this, he sets up an edict that guarantees that all the wives hear about it. He ends up causing the very thing he was trying to avoid. Then a law is made that cannot be repealed that Queen Vashti is never, to become, is never to come before the king again. Now this law has a certain irony to it. Remember, it was the king who wanted Queen Vashti 
to come before the king. And it was Queen Vashti who didn't want to come before the king. So the queen's punishment for not coming before the king is that now she will never be allowed to come before the king. Which, of course, is the very thing the king wanted her to do. By the end of the account, Queen Vashti is seen in a positive light. Unwilling to be paraded like the king's concubine, she has been given what she wanted. Whereas in a bizarre attempt to hide the fact that the queen has been embarrassed, sorry, the king has been embarrassed before all his men, an edict is made to announce it to the whole kingdom. And so we come to the end of the first chapter of Esther. And as we said at the beginning, it's intended to set the scene for the rest of the book. We now have a king in need of a new queen. But why did it take so long for the narrator to provide us with this context? He could have probably presented it in two or three verses. The king asked his queen to come before him. She refused, the king banished her from the kingdom. But that isn't the only context that this chapter has provided. What we have here is a king who is extravagant, who rules over the whole known world, and spends large amount of his time celebrating his own glory. But it also provides a very precarious situation. The king's very quick to make edicts that are irreversible. He makes edicts for silly things like each man being allowed to drink as he desires. Also, he makes clumsy edicts at the advice of his pathetic advisers. And in the past, we've considered how God can intervene in the creation he sustains through his mighty acts, as we see in the book of Exodus. We also see how his providence works through the acts of evil men, as seen when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. But in Esther, we will see if God can work his plan through a kingdom that is run by a king that follows his every whim and follows the bad advice of all those around him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have seen you or read of you working your mighty acts in the book of Exodus. And we've seen how you can work through the evil of humanity. As we pray, Lord, as we continue to reflect upon these themes as we work through the book of Esther, we do so with a confidence you can work through a foolish kingdom to bring about your will, purpose, and plan. Amen. Uh, well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been thinking about. That time has now arrived, so I'll give you a minute to have a think.
Yes, Susie. Cool. Okay, so just a um, bit in terms of um, where we are. So wh which phase of redemptive history are we in here? So if you remember um, the... Actually, interestingly enough, we're just the other side of Daniel. Or at least, not the other side of Daniel, but how is the best way of doing it? So... The people of Israel split into two nations, two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. Israel ended up going into, or being effectively destroyed, and then Judah went into exile. Their exile takes place in Babylon, under the Babylonian kingdom. And then if you remember what we were thinking about in Ezra, the Persians and the Medes, they take over the kingdom and then they send people back to some people back to build the temple and that's the sort of area we're in now so the Persian and the media the Medes have taken over and Ahasuerus is one of the kings of Persia I could probably try and be a bit more precise but that's probably a, would do as so yeah sort of similar time to Ezra Which is, well, yeah, it's, it's hard to know. I could say more, but then I'd give away the story. But I know you, I know you know the story, but it's kind of it's nice to see it unfold. Any other questions? It's quite. An interesting chapter and it's quite simple and straightforward um, but yet quite peculiar like I say in the absence of any Israelites and any and God um, it makes for an interesting sermon or not as the case may be but yeah I, I think with, whenever you start a new book there's a lot about right we're just setting the scene as we get into it this is all going to make sense as we go further on Adrian, have you got a question? I might have to ask Adrian for an answer for this one. Yeah, Esther's quite a... F well, I think Esther's a perfect example of this. So, if you think... Um, a lot of sermons I've heard in the past, obviously, you're coming to church and you're thinking, right, I need something that's going to get me through the next week. I need something that's going to um, 
Oh, I guess in your daily Bible reading we do this as well. So you think you get down, you sit down in the morning and you think, right, I'm going to read a passage from the Bible. What is God saying to me today from this passage? And you're expecting fireworks, you know, you're expecting this big message and uh, this is going to get me through the day and all this sort of stuff. But Esther's quite a good example that actually slows us down a little bit and says, well, hang on a minute, let's just be patient. Um, the Bible is full of God's redemptive plan. But it has to unfold like any other story in the sense that it builds up over time. And there's a few really nice examples in Esther where something happens that in, in, in the confines of its chapter is meaningless. It's just like, why, why has the writer told us this? And it's only a few chapters later that it's like, oh, okay, that's why the writer's told us this, because it's prepared us for something else that's come later. Um, and so one of the big things that we're reading in Esther, what we're thinking about is in terms of God's providence. That simply means that God provides everything we need, and God makes provision for us. And the bizarre thing about Esther is that although it's quite distant from us, in that it's something that we read, that, that happened many, 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 many years ago, actually it's quite similar to our situation. God isn't revealing himself in mighty acts. There's no hands coming out and being drawn, drawn on the wall, that sort of stuff. But really it's just about Esther getting on with her day-to-day -day life. And as she gets on with her day-to-day -day life, as she reflects back, she can look at how God has provided for her, despite the fact that God is never mentioned. And I think, actually, that rings true, quite true for us, in that we know God's plan. It's been published in the Bible. That's what the whole Bible provides us with. But in the day-to-day, -day, we're not seeing lightning bolts coming from the sky, or hands drawing on. To be funny, I wouldn't want to see a hand draw on the wall, because normally that means bad news. Um, or having dreams and visions. Dreams and visions also normally, not always, but tend to be bad news. But nevertheless, rather, we're getting on with our lives in light of God's redemptive plan, knowing that God will bring and fulfil his purpose. That sort of thing Shall we leave it there, unless anyone's got a real desperate question? Anyone with a question? No? Okay, let's leave it there. Obviously, like, as I say, this is just the introduction, just getting us started. Come back for next week, and we'll see how the story continues to unfold. We're going to sing our next song, which is There is a Redeemer, and then we're going to have a brief reflection.